Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM, the Middle East Forum in the morning. We have an exciting program for you today. Starting off with Abha Shankar, Senior Researcher at the Investigative Project on Terrorism. I'm really excited to be able to speak with her, especially after the somber moments yesterday on the 17th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. And later, we have Raheel Raza, a leading Muslim reformer in Toronto, Canada, working for the Clarion Project and her own organization, Muslims Facing Tomorrow. And we're really going to have a good interview with them. But to start off, there is an uh, echo of jingoism emanating throughout the Middle East this morning. We have the Syrian army, the Syrian Arab army under President Bashar al-Assad, preparing for the last, what may be last, attack and the last rebel bastion in Idlib province in northwest Syria. This is the area between the, the Turkish-Syrian border, where currently you have Iranian, Syrian, Lebanese Hezbollah, and other Syrian allied forces on one side, and on the other you have the remnants of the Syrian opposition, which year after year, starting since the Russian intervention in 2015-2016, has been bussing its own rebels from the other four corners of Syria, whether it be near the Golan Heights, near the Kurdish canton of Afrin, near the other former rebel-held territory like Daraa and Aleppo, and some other significant provinces which have since been retaken by Assad. And they have now all found themselves in this small province where the UN even last week said we may be looking at a potential genocide of three million people who are currently there. Now, you have had the Astana process, which for our listeners that are not aware of this, is the attempt by... Russia, Iran, Syria, and Turkey to mediate a solution to the crisis in Idlib province. But after talks broke down last week between President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, President of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, and President of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, we now find ourselves in a situation where the Arab, the Syrian Arab army is about to advance. So this has provoked very heavy reactions, not just from uh, Turkey, which is threatened in, in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, written by President Erdogan to intervene, but also from Western allies of the Syrian opposition, who in one way or another have been supporting them for the past seven years. We saw a statement by President uh, uh, Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, promising that the U.S. would deliver a counterattack that's more severe than its previous two assaults on Syria if Assad was to use chemical weapon, weapons. Bolton said in a speech on Monday in Washington, I can say we've been in consultations with the British and the French who have joined us in the second strike, and they also agree that another use of chemical weapons will result in a much stronger response. Now, the first time that President Trump decided to intervene in Syria, it was after a sarin and, and mixed chlorine gas attack about two years ago. Well, less than two years ago. I, I think it's about maybe a year ago, where we saw that a air base was basically leveled, and, and this was allegedly the air base that the Syrian regime had used to launch a strike on a, on a suburb of Damascus, Syria's capital. The second time that they had intervened, it was in joining in, in, in basically one way or another by providing intelligence information to the Israelis after the Iranians had struck a few Israeli positions in the Golan Heights. So there was no direct U.S. kinetic action in Syria 
uh, after that strike on Israeli soil, but they did provide intelligence, logistics, and coordinating support. I can only imagine that the capabilities of the Syrian army will be further diminished if the U.S. is to intervene. But unfortunately, this will not stop the advance. Insofar as we have a very strong Russian naval presence with 14 to 15 warships off the Syrian coast sitting in the Mediterranean Sea, and the Russians in one way or another have been using Syria as their battleground, as their testing ground for new advanced Russian weaponry. Whether it's advanced missiles, whether it's short surface-to-surface missiles, whether it's the use of its new cruise missiles, which in one case the Russians decided to launch from the Caspian Sea all the way across Iranian, Iraqi, Turkish, and rebel-held Syrian territory to strike at a few targets which had allegedly been behind an attack on a Russian plane and Russian land units. Now, beyond that, the Russians also have a lot of skin in the game as it relates to their present hold on Syria. Even if Syria's aerial capacity is wiped out, meaning that all of its fighter craft, its bomber craft, its helicopters are knocked out of the sky and the runways are raised and ruined by American and British and French forces, we will find ourselves in a situation where the Russians still have command of the skies, at least in the area which is west of the Euphrates River, as was agreed upon on a deconfliction mechanism between the Americans and the Russians that was not necessarily an agreement that was signed, but that was an agreement that was entered into during the Obama administration. Now, the Russians, why are they involved in Syria? Why are they supporting Assad's last attempt to unify the Syrian Uh, territory that had existed prior to the start of the Syrian civil war in February of 2011. There's three or four reasons here. The first is is that Russia has geographic uh, uh, interests and geopolitical assets that it would like to be able to control. First, there's a deep seaport in Tartus. Now, we've talked about this on the program a few weeks ago with Jonathan Spire, one of the correspondents for the Middle East Forum, who has spent at least five separate times in different areas of Syrian-held territory and also Syrian rebel-controlled territory. But to go a little bit deeper into it, Putin is putting all the cards on the table right now to be able to not just hold on to those assets, to, to make sure, but to make sure that the host government that controls uh, uh, the areas in which he liked to put his Eastern Mediterranean naval bases for Russia's fleet, so they have a way to have an, to basically have an egress outside of the Black Sea, should the uh, the Straits of the Bos- Bosphorus, or or in one way or another, the area between Greece and Turkey, be closed by a NATO action and any future security threat against him. So Putin gets a port out of this. He also gets an airport and an airbase which can handle heavy Russian bombers, it can handle tactical fighters, it'll give him his first asset outside of former Soviet Union countries, which once held host to a, to a whole series of different then Soviet assets, but now Russian assets. The third thing that he gets is the bragging rights to be able to claim that he was the peacemaker in Syria, very much like he claims he was in Georgia or in the Crimea during the Ukrainian conflict, which still rages right now in eastern uh, in eastern Ukraine between the uh, Russian-backed rebels there and the Ukrainian nationalist forces. And after Putin is done with Syria, we have to ask the fourth thing what he gets. What kind of economic interests do Russian firms have in the rebuilding of Syria? 
There'll be a lot of development aid thrown by the West at Syria after it ends its conflict, either by uh, by freight or by might. But I also think that there's a lot of Russian firms that stand to gain from this, whether it's oil production companies uh, looking for Syria's hydrocarbon resources, whether it's cell phone companies looking to get licenses, or whether it's just uh, cement companies providing the, the, the literal uh, building blocks for new Syria. After these messages, Abha Shankar from the Investigative Project. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. We're back with Middle East Forum in the Morning on WWDB 860 AM. Now I'm joined by Abha Shankar, a senior intelligence analyst at the Investigative Project on Terrorism. Before her position at the IPT, as it's known in the uh, counter-Islamism world, Abha worked as a development and publications coordinator at Women in International Security. She holds a master's degree in security studies from Georgetown University and a PhD from India's Jawaharlal Nehru University, also in international relations. Abha, welcome to the program. Thank you, Greg, for having me. No problem. So can you tell us, what is the Investigative Project on Terrorism and what is your role there? Sure. So in a nutshell, the Investigative Project on Terrorism is a nonprofit organization that was founded by Stephen Emerson, who's our current executive director in 1995. We are the world's most comprehensive data centers on radical Islamist terrorism. We investigate the operations, funding, activities of Islamist terrorists and their front groups in the United States and around the world. We provide analyses and expertise to Congress, intelligence agencies, and law enforcement. And we also disseminate information to generate awareness and educate the public on the threats from radical Islam, including through our website, which is www.investigativeproject.org. 
And I really recommend that everybody listening this morning check out that website. They have incredible assets that are not just available for law enforcement, for national security experts, for intelligence professionals, but also the general public. And their archive of articles and reports goes back at least 20 years to the time that Steve Emerson was really cutting his teeth after being a productive a, a producer for CNN's uh, investigative unit, I believe. Now, now, Abha, how did you in one way or another, get involved with this field. It's, uh, I understand your, your 10th year anniversary at the investigative project, and um, yesterday marks 17 years since 9-11. But do you really think that Islamism is, is still relevant today? And, and if so, why? So I was in India. I've grown up there. And uh, 9-11 happened the time I was in India. And uh, even... In South Asia, we were confronting the threat from radical Islam for the longest time. And it was 9-11 that got me interested in fighting radical Islam and jihad. And I applied to this graduate program at Georgetown University's prestigious security studies program. And uh, soon afterwards, uh, I joined the investigative project on terrorism because I was very impressed with Stephen Emerson's work, and um, I, I do feel that radical Islam is a major threat to U.S. national security and to the security of our allies and friends around the world. Um, I would also like to talk a little bit about the IPT's role in the counterterrorism field, which I feel is unique, and we fill a very important niche. So I'd like to take a step backward and talk about our impact over the years. Yeah, that, that would be great. I also understand that you have a very unique uh, point of view as it relates to women's rights in the counterterrorism uh, community, and not just as it relates to the violent aspects, but also the, the culture that permeates communities that in one way or another that have been touched by Islamism. Uh, but, but before we get to that, what is IPT's role in, in this field? And, and, and how does it, uh, in one way or another, contribute to American national security? Sure. So, responding to that question, I want to say that our role in the counterterrorism field is unique, and we fill a very important niche. So, over 20 years ago, the political leadership of both Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad operated freely in the United States. Stephen Emerson helped shed light on this through his groundbreaking documentary in 1994 known as Jihad in America, and of course, subsequent reporting and research by the IPT's incredibly talented staff. Today, many of those leaders from Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad are either in jail or have been deported. The threat now has morphed into one of stealth jihad, where Islamist groups that had their origins in the Muslim Brotherhood and a former Hamas support network in the United States, known as the Palestine Committee, operate under the false guise of civil rights and advocacy groups. The most visible example of this is the Council on American Islamic Relations. We've had a lot of conversations about care. I mean, if you just look at the history of Nihad Awad, and he's now proliferated to 27, 28 different care chapters across the United States. 
we find ourselves in a situation where you know some of these uh, chapters may demonstrate that they're above board, but when you catch them in conversations behind closed doors, they're permeating the worst anti-American values that we can find: homophobia, uh, anti-women's rights, misogynistic feelings uh, against equity of American uh, programs, and they even openly criticize America's counterterrorism programs. What what is the IPT doing to shed light on care? So. No one, and I repeat, no one, has exposed more of CARE's nefarious objectives or its ties to Hamas than the IPT. We are routinely monitoring CARE chapters around the country, the CARE national chapter in Washington, D.C., for uh, statements they make which are anti-American, anti-Israeli, which are advocating radical islam one of the one of the phrases that care routinely uses is that the war on islam is the war on terror and i feel statements like these as well as constant accusations of islamophobia actually radicalize american muslims and muslims around the world because they show that the united states is at war with islam which it is not. It is at war with Islamism, not Islam. So care does not make that distinction and constantly keeps talking about rising Islamophobia, rising, um, the rising war on terror. So I feel that this kind of rhetoric actually goes against the U.S. national security threat and actually makes us less secure and uh, radicalizes American Muslim communities. So in one way or another, CARE is providing a fig leaf for, at at the very best case scenario, nonviolent radicalism, but at the very worst case scenario, programs or or criticisms of programs that are designed to protect Americans. That's that's abhorrent. Now, can can we uh, uh, pivot a little bit here to uh, speak a little bit more about the activities that I think you have a very uh, specific niche in, which is identifying uh, in the, as it re- re- relates to women's rights in the United States, uh, the issues of honor violence that are going on in uh, American communities, and even the cases that I think IPT has recently covered of female genital mutilation, which, which in one way or another was, was thoughtfully sanctioned in, in some states, uh, until there was a federal ban against it, and then subsequent state bans. What, what can you tell us about cases of, of honor violence, maybe one or two, that you're able to, uh, to, to, to identify that have happened in the U.S., and maybe give us a definition of what honor violence is before we get into the specific examples? So, as you rightly mentioned, Greg, the two primary women's rights issues in the United States that we have focused on are honor violence and female genital mutilation, FGM for short. Honor violence is a kind of institutionalized violence against women and young girls in the name of protecting the family honor. So a lot of times behavior engaged in by young women that is deemed unacceptable by a number of American Muslim families, such as uh, dating a boy from outside the community or dressing in Western-style clothing or listening to Western music, it uh, 
leads to a strong reaction from within families, which can also also uh, morph into um, you know death threats or uh, physical abuse. So we had this uh, recent case of uh, a young 15-year-old high school student from San Antonio who was of Iraqi origin, and she was offered her hand in marriage to a man who was 10 years older. This girl was 15 years old, and her parents offered her hand in marriage to someone who was 25? That's correct. Th- that, that's ridiculous. Now, I can understand maybe getting a little upset if, uh, if, if one of my daughters was to wear something a little promiscuous, but it wouldn't result in violence. And I could never imagine that there would be a situation in which a minor was offered in marriage to someone who was 10 years her senior. Tell us more about this, 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 uh, this Iraqi girl. So, so the, the boy, he was willing to pay the parents, the man was willing to pay the parents $20,000 to take this young girl as his bride. And after this girl refused, her parents, they beat her up to unconsciousness, beat her with broomsticks, poured hot oil over her, which is horrific. Fortunately, this girl managed to escape, and she was tracked down by police. She and her five brothers, they've been taken in by the Child Protective Services, and her parents are now in custody, fortunately. So and so this, this, this case, it's not just a situation where the parents were arranging a marriage with them, but they engaged in brutal, violent behavior. Against her when she refused their order, and and what you're saying, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that this came because they thought it was all right to impose their cultural norms in an American city, even though that they had been long gone from the the, the society from which they had left, and they thought there was some sort of of, of normativity of being able to, to burn her with hot oil because she refused her parents' offer to try to solicit her or, or try to, to sell her into yes. prostitution? that That's what this sounds like. No, that is, that is true, Greg, and it truly is unfortunate. And one thing I do want to mention in regards to honor crimes is that they are, in a way, tacitly supported by the Islamists. So we had uh, a major convention hosted by a top Islamist organization in the United States, the Islamic Society of North America, which is a Muslim Brotherhood front group, and they hosted this convention in Houston. And at the convention, a prominent Islamist by the name of Dalia Mugahid, you may be familiar with her name, she actually went on record saying that there is no such thing as honor violence. And it is something that is being created by our detractors to malign Islam, and she called honor violence as, as a form of liberal Islamophobia that the, our detractors were talking about honor violence uh, because they were Islamophobes. So there is a complete denial of this problem from within the radical Islamist community in the United States. Well, if there's an allowance for someone to make this kind of statement that is... Uh, uh, openly flouting a blame-the-victim type of mentality and then to even suggest that those who highlight the issue of honor violence against the victims and are trying to point out something which I think you've demonstrated is endemic within uh, uh, Islamist-related cultures, 
it, it shows to me that that we're living in a culture that's blind to betrayal and intolerant of the pain of these victims if she goes without condemnation, especially from those on, on, on the left who make these rights a, a, a plank of their main political platforms and, 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 and statements to society. Is there any other instances of this that you can, uh, that you can share with us? So, honor violence has impacted thousands of women and girls in the United States, and millions others are at risk. There was another case that comes to mind, and this was in Phoenix, Arizona, where a 19-year-old girl, she was caught talking to a boy, and her mother and sister, they locked her up, padlocked her to her bed, and they beat her up. And um, in fact, the mother, she put a knife to her daughter's throat, and um, she said that you have to go in for arranged marriages, like an arranged marriage. And uh, it, it is definitely an endemic problem. And uh, along with the issue of honor violence, you do have the problem with uh, forced marriages, which is a part of um, keeping the honor of the family by marrying a young girl to someone, uh, someone without her consent, forcing her into marriage, literally. So I understand that there was uh, not just the case here, of um, trying to, 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 to suborn her to a decision that she didn't want to. But at this individual's trial, I believe this is Aya Altamimi, mm-hmm. she defended her parents by saying, we are Muslim, our culture says no talking to boys. So it even went so far as to give her a sort of a Stockholm syndrome right. of, of justifying her parents' violence against her. Now, right. this is this is something that I think we find in, in, in families um, that are present in, in a, a family unit or one way or another with a certain element of society that condones this Islamist-backed behavior. But there's also a much greater threat of physical violence that's in, in, in uh, I, th- I think, in certain circles, whether it comes out of Egypt or, or North uh, mm-hmm. Sudan or other areas that has been institutionalized in the United States. Now, you, uh, you gave us an example here of female genital mutilation that was provided to us before the show. And I just want to share this statistic. Uh, you point to a study that says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that 513,000 women and girls have undergone or are at risk of FGM in the U.S. But only 26 states have specifically outlawed this harmful procedure, which has no health benefits but does have lifelong physical and psychological consequences. What's this current status? Why have 24 states not banned this outright? So I think it's a question of not being publicly aware of the issue. And uh, there was a recent case in Michigan of a medical doctor and five of her associates who performed FGM on six young girls. And uh, the doctor, her name is Jamana Nagarwala, and she was charged along with her associates uh, by a federal court. And the case is going to be prosecuted in January of 2019. And hopefully the momentum from this groundbreaking trial can be used to raise awareness about the issue of FGM in the United States, as well as help implement state legislation in states that do not currently ban FGM. Uh, That said, I also want to mention how Islamists in the United States 
have supported, spoken out in support of FGM. Okay, Abha, we have one minute left. Uh, why don't sure. you tell, tell us about that for 30 seconds and then give us 30 seconds on IPT to conclude. Absolutely. So in um, June of uh, 2017, there was this uh, prominent uh, imam. He's a Muslim Brotherhood imam at Dar al-Hijra Mosque, which has in the past been connected to terrorism. And he gave a fatwa supporting, endorsing partial FGM. Also, there's another group known as the Assembly of Muslim Jurists, which is a Muslim Brotherhood group in the United States that has ties to care, and they issued a fatwa endorsing FGM. So you have large segments within the Islamist community that support FGM. All right, we've got 15 seconds left. Uh, sure. So the, the IPT um, is uh, critical in the fight against radical Islam, and uh, we play a very important role. We have uh, broken a number of investigations that have helped law enforcement, that have helped uh, the public. And um, and, and I would, would just uh, say, everyone, mm-hmm. go to investigativeproject.org. This organization founded by Steve Emerson in 1994-1995 during the, the height of American ignorance against jihadism overseas that would eventually lead to 9-11 attacks that we commemorated yesterday during the 17th anniversary doesn't just cover the instances of terrorism and radicalism against the United States from outside its borders, but also critical issues like Abha Shankar discussed this morning as it relates to female genital mutilation, honor violence, and a whole litany of other anti-progressive actions that are being defended by progressive forces in this country. Abha, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Greg. Have a nice day. You too. Thank you. Next, Rahil Raza. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum in the Morning. What a fascinating interview we just had with Abha Shankar from the Investigative Project on Terrorism. And I'm equally excited for our next guest, Ms. Raheel Raza from Muslims Facing Tomorrow and also the Clarion Project. 
Rahil Raz is a Pakistani-Canadian journalist, author, anti-racism activist, and interfaith discussion leader who opposes Islamic extremism. An outspoken advocate for gender equality and an activist for women's rights internationally, she's appeared many times in print, radio, and television media to reveal and debate Canadian and also global issues as it relates to media, diversity, gender, and immigrants. She's also the first Muslim woman in Canada to lead mixed gender prayers. Rahil, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. And how is it going up there in Toronto? It's great. We have a beautiful sunny day. Well, it's a lot better than the uh, misery we're facing here with Hurricane Florence bearing down on the east coast of the United States. But oh, uh, ho- hopefully we can have a little bit more enlightened discussion besides the uh, dreary dark weather that's outside today of our Philadelphia studio. Yeah. So, Raheel, what inspired you to enter this line of work acting as one of the most prominent and, and I, I, I think uh, well-educated and well-versed anti-extremism Muslim activists, if not just in Canada, but around the rest of the world? Well, um, I think I was born an activist. <laughs> I didn't realize it <laughs> until uh, I was growing up or until I knew what activism meant. But, uh, you know, I always spoke out against injustices. I saw and inequalities. I was born and brought up for the first 20 years of my life in Pakistan. And um, I uh, asked a lot of questions. But um, it was a culture where girls were supposed to be seen and not heard. So there wasn't uh, an opportunity to really express myself or ask these pulsating questions that were in my mind. So um, after I left Pakistan, and especially when I came to Canada 30 years ago, I experienced uh, the freedom uh, that that you find in a liberal democracy. And uh, it was uh, heady, uh, you know, it was just something so different from, from the kind of places that I had lived in. And, um, uh, you know, I saw that uh, there was an ideology that was permeating my faith and the Muslim world, which was not in sync with the kind of Islam that I knew that I grew up with. You see, I age myself when I tell you that I I grew up in Pakistan with a very different uh, perception and practice of Islam, which was tolerant, compassionate, which was very respectful of uh, other faiths and other people. And uh, this uh, Wahhabi Salafi ideology that has now engulfed us today was uh, not something that existed at that time, but it had just started coming into Pakistan. You know, this was the late 1970s when the oil embargo had happened, when uh, the you know Khomeini had gone back to Iran after the revolution and st- said he was going to export the revolution, and the Saudis were flexing their muscles because of the oil embargo, and so. There were the signs on the horizon that something was not right. And I felt personally compelled to start asking questions about why this was happening and what was not right. And so I I started speaking out, I started writing, and um, it led me to where I am today. And I think that this journey that you've experienced from leaving Pakistan to arriving in Canada, enjoying the fruits of Western liberal democracy, uh, is not just the, the beginning of your journey, but one of the things that we see happening right now in Canada, as I understand, is, is that there's a little bit of a backlash that is, uh, in one way or another, sort of over-politicizing the um, um, allegations of 
uh, uh, when a Western liberal democracy criticizes certain versions of Islamism or of extremism, it's not branded as good governance or as justified criticism. But in some cases, it's, uh, uh, and I'll quote from this, uh, something that's called Motion 103, which was a Canadian parliament passed uh, uh, call for the government to quell the increasing public climate of hate and fear. So you you go from Pakistan, which is in the late 1970s, starting to ebb with extremism a little bit. We see what happens in the 80s and 90s, and even after the recent election with Anwar Khan uh, a few weeks ago. But now do you find yourself trying to combat the same forces that you left when you came to Canada 30 years ago? Oh, absolutely. And, and this is what actually spiraled me into speaking out. So we had left Pakistan because the Saudi ideology of Wahhabism and Salafism was coming into Pakistan in a big way, backed, of course, by billions of petrodollars. So as you know, whenever there is money, there's an agenda behind it. And we see this happening in the West. But at that time, uh, when I came to Canada, slowly I started seeing that the same ideology that we had left behind was following us into Canada. And, you know, there were people who, who were promoting this ideology and agenda, and slowly and gradually the mosques and Islamic institutions were being funded by either Iran or Saudi Arabia. And so the messages were changing. And my family and I used to actually uh, attend a mosque, and then we saw the politicization of our faith. It was no longer about worship and spirituality. It was about political messaging. And to me, this is where the root of the problem is. Uh, when a faith is so heavily politicized that it loses all spirituality and then just becomes uh, an agenda uh, to, for hegemony and control and power. And uh, you talk about M103. Uh, that is, is a huge thorn in, in our side for those of us who are speaking out against terrorism and against extremism. It is a way to silence people, even Muslims. Now, I understand uh, there's, a, there's a slippery slope here where if you bring up something that in the United States where we have the First Amendment, there's open criticism, there's public participation in debates, defamation, libel, and slander cases are very hard to bring against individuals because of that constitutional protection, that you may get up in the public square, whether it be in Toronto or Ottawa or Calgary or Vancouver or wherever it is that you're speaking in Canada, and you may offer not a veiled criticism, but a very direct uh, 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 critique of Islamist activity in Canada. And I guess it's not necessarily M103 that would threaten you but the gradual slippery slope that legislation against public participation in the debate over extremism might silence you by threat of maybe a civil or, or even, God forbid, a criminal charge against you if someone brings it because they're offended by what you said. That actually might be a truth, but is, is, is something that, that they consider to be a phobia rather than a legitimate critique. Yes, you're absolutely right. The term Islamophobia which was coined after 9-11 to stifle free speech and debate, is exactly what is happening <clears throat> in Canada. And Canadians who are uh, by nature very soft and very, uh, you know, very nice people and, and very caring people are terrified of being called Islamophobes. And I actually, uh, you know, have a, a great issue against this, this term Islamophobia because it's just being used as a tool uh, to silence debate and discussion. And there was a time 
when I felt very confident in Canada because of the freedoms here that I, I as a Muslim, could say whatever I wanted. But now uh, we are being told that, uh, you know, it's not kosher to speak out. And even on, on very valid issues, you see, the, the fight against terrorism and extremism is real. Uh, it's not that we have created the monster. The monster exists. A radical Islamist jihadist ideology exists. And, you know, it's not just me saying it. It's not rocket science. We know that it is there. And I, I as a Muslim, looking at parts of the Muslim world, looking at the Muslim psyche, looking at the change in, in the ideology of Muslims, even living in the West, know that this ideology does exist. And we have to battle it. We have to speak out against it. So this, uh, you know, the, the movement by the regressive left, the political correctness, this institution of uh, M103 has really uh, diverted people from being able to address the real issues. I mean, we've, look at, so we've just had September 11. There should have been massive debate and discussion in schools all over the government about what led to 9-11 and, and what we can do to ensure that something like that doesn't happen again. But there is complete radio silence on it. What is it going to take? Another act of extreme violence against a Western target to be able to rekindle this debate? I mean, even if we've seen a, a whole spate of terror attacks in Canada, it's been blamed on everything except for Islamist extremism, whether it was mental illness, whether it was problems in the family, whether it was a domestic dispute. I mean, you get to a point right now where Canada, Canadians and, and Americans and other Westerners have felt the direct result of ISIS and other Islamist group inspired violence, yet it refuses to call it by its name. What will it take for us to get into a situation where there can be an honest debate about these issues with, like you said beforehand, the tough conversations, especially around anniversaries like 9-11, to be able to get there? Now, can you give us an example of having uh, a group try to silence you and how you were able to get around it? I understand that the, uh, the, the maligned activities of the Southern Poverty Law Center was uh, trying to track some of your speeches that were going on in, in, in uh, the United States and in Canada. You know, how, how does it feel to be on, on the brunt end of one of these attacks? And on the other side, how can we help you get beyond that and to ensure that these institutions that are trying to, to, to shut you up, basically, can actually have to pay a price for their defamation of your character and for their attempts to censor your message? Well, the movement, the, the attack by the SPLC was extremely frustrating, to say the least, uh, because, you know, they associated me with the Clarion Project, which, of course, exposes the dangers of, of radical Islam. And, you know, they give voice to more Muslims than any other, than any other Muslim organization I know does. But, um, you know, it's frustrating because what do we do? I mean, the SPLC is powerful and very strong. A person like Majid Nawaz of Quilliam was able to... Uh, you know, sue them, but not every ordinary. We look at that, and and I say that. Uh, however, you know, we look at that, and and I say that we have to continue to do what we have to do. At least this is what I feel, because the purpose of of these organizations and the regressive left is to silence us, and uh, we can't be silenced because uh, you know we have to continue to speak out. In Canada, of course, this becomes now. Uh, a, a real issue because 
you may know that 60 ISIS fighters have been brought back into Canada and they have been let loose and they're roaming around freely uh, because, um, according to our wonderful leader, they can be quote-unquote rehabilitated. So, uh, you know, how do you rehabilitate a terrorist who has no other agenda except to damage and create violence and kill people? So when we speak out and we critique this, of course, we have slammed from all sides. And the frustration I feel as a practicing observant Muslim, because my mandate and our mandate in Muslims Facing Tomorrow is to bring change from inside, the change that has to come within Muslim communities. So we speak uh, from within the faith. And we are called Islamophobes. I think that's not only ironical, it's laughable. But this is this is what happens, and uh, I have been, uh, you know, I have death threats. I have been sued. I have a fatwa against me. Uh, it is from all sides. The Muslim extremists think that I'm anti-Islam, so they try to silence me. And then you have on the other side the regressive left, the SPLC, uh, you know, Antifa, or Antifa, all these people who think that uh, I am anti-Islam because I critique what is wrong within the Muslim world. And that is our moral and ethical responsibility to do that. Um, you know, I wrote a piece about 9-11, about the lessons we did not learn. And somebody emailed me and said, you know, you're always criticizing radical Islam. Why don't you criticize white supremacists? And I gave a simple response that if there is garbage in my house and there is garbage in my neighbor's house, I feel it is my ethical and moral responsibility to clean up my garbage before I critique others. Every faith, every community has to uh, critique what is wrong within their, their own communities. I am a Muslim, and therefore I speak out about what is happening in the Muslim world. I speak out against radical Islam because that is not the Islam that I grew up with. It has been um, misinterpreted. It has been misused. Uh, and it is blatantly against the values of human rights. Now, I, I'd like to share something with you, but, I, but I'd also like to compliment you on your efforts to act as a guardian for what is good and as a monitor and an observer for what is evil. That's something that's sorely lacking in this world today. But there are significant forces against you. A quote from an article in the New Delhi Times that came out about two or three weeks ago regarding Pakistan's state-sponsored interference in Canada's internal politics, especially as it relates to its recent criticism of Saudi Arabia. Now, this article was written by Dr. Ankit Srivastava, uh, the editor-in-chief of the New Delhi Times. I quote, A Pakistani diplomat in Toronto dared to threaten the Pakistan-born Canadian journalist Tariq Fatah, also a, uh, a fellow at the Middle East Forum, meaning fixing into silence. Canadian intelligence expert Tom Quiggins' exposure posted a telephonic conversation between the Pakistan ambassador and an unnamed journalist on YouTube. He also testified before the Senate and the Air India inquiry. Beyond that, this ambassador was uh, seen as showing that Canadians are now truly worried about their safety as their politicians under the veneer of secularism and multiculturalism helped promote a virulent form of political Islam. This was pointed to with the removal of the statue of Sir John MacDonald from Victoria and also a park in Winnipeg dedicated to Pakistan's founder, M.A. Gina, which has dented the Canadian psyche. What is it like having left 
your country some 30 years ago, your, your country of birth some 30 years ago, arriving in Canada and now seeing Pakistan state-sponsored activities at your front door. I couldn't imagine a more clarion call, not to put a pun on the organization, <laughs> for, your, uh, for your involvement. It's as if though Pakistan has followed you to Toronto. Well, yes, that is exactly what I say. And, you know, as I said, it's, it's ironical that here we are having left uh, my land of birth. And, you know, it's never easy to do that. I think what people have to understand that when immigrants come, they leave their country, they leave their culture, they leave their families. It's it's not an easy thing to do, but we do it for, for the sake of our children and, and our grandchildren for a better future to live uh, in a country where we have freedoms, or at least we believe that we have those freedoms. When I see those freedoms being thwarted, when I see those freedoms um, under attack, uh, you know, it really bothers me. And, uh, you know, I speak out very clearly against this. You know, there are issues of the blasphemy and apostasy laws in Pakistan. There are honor killings. And I have never held back in critiquing all of this that is happening, even in my land of birth, at the risk, again, of being called anti-Pakistani or being called, called anti-Islamic. But it is, um, it, it is terrifying because... I have family in Pakistan, and I do travel back, and I want to have the freedom to be able to go back and forth. But it is frightening to know that we are being monitored, even here uh, where we live in a free country, and that those forces are at play here. I mean, you look look at Iran, who has, uh, you know, been funding the militias abroad, and, uh, you know, I'm very in involved in Canada in the uh, you know anti anti regime movement in in Iran, I speak out against uh, these issues. But honest with you, if one has to be a human rights activist and it has to be across the board, I can't condone what is happening in my country of birth just because I happen to be from Pakistan. It has to be across the board. You know, it has to be human rights everywhere. And of course, when you look at the interplay of uh, the, the oil politics and, and the relationships with those countries uh, that many Western leaders have, that's also something that is disturbing because, you know, we must speak out against human rights violations everywhere, even if it is in this country or, or back home. But what you are talking about is very frightening, and those activists in Canada who have been uh, labeled, um, uh, you know, anti-Islamic or who have been labeled anti-Muslim, it is very difficult for them to live their daily life and, and speak out because we have families. Raheel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's now, my pleasure. Thank you for having can, me. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we can follow you on Twitter, or Facebook, your website before we part ways? Yes, Raheel Raza, just my name. Uh, my website is www.muslimsfacingtomorrow.com. And, of course, the Clarion Project is www.clarionproject.org. I write for them regularly. And uh, they have a newsletter where they speak out against uh, the radicalization that is going on. And, of course, I'm part of the Muslim Reform Movement, which is muslimreformmovement.org. And we'll make sure to put those links on our website later today. Raheel, thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with have two a great one. Day. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back with 212 after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. 
Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. We're back with Middle East Forum in the Morning on WWDB 860 AM. Two fascinating interviews. The first with Abhash Shankar, a senior intelligence analyst at the Investigative Project on Terrorism, and then Rahil Raza, founder of Muslims Facing Tomorrow, combating state-sponsored Islamist extremism in her new country of Canada after having left her old country of Pakistan. So what are we to learn about the efforts, both in the United States as it relates to women's rights in Muslim communities, and also in Pakistan right now, where you have not just the government of Canada trying to censor activists that are speaking out, not just outside of communities offering a little bit of color commentary on the activities of other communities and other cultures, but also from within Muslim Canada, where you have brave individuals who, as Raheel said, are being subjected to fatwas, religious uh, edicts calling for them to be criticized by other countries' diplomatic missions offering critiques of the activists who are trying to reform the religion from within, and even getting to the point where they have to worry about death threats, not just to themselves, but also in the families of their country of origin. So my take on this is that I think the need to be able to have a monitor in the United States on the activities that are going on here, but also overseas, has been implemented by this current administration. I'll give you a few examples. The first is the Trump administration's willingness to criticize the activities of another Islamist country or, or a country that's led by an Islamist dictator, Turkey, by pointing out the examples of the violations of freedom of the press, of jailing individuals because of their alleged affiliation with a movement that probably wasn't behind a coup attempt in Turkey two years ago, by having Turkey sponsor the activities of the... Um, Turkey sponsoring the activities of Islamist organizations here in the United States and even going so far to suppress their opposition by either jailing them, expelling them from the country, or going after them in so-called counter-terrorist operations when it's really just trying to fracture their uh, Kurdish minority there. And then we look at here in the United States at the Trump administration's activities, they've tried to raise a light on the specter of extremism by reforming our immigration policies, not by focusing on Muslims, but by focusing on Islamists and the negative characteristics that they might bring if their values come with them across the border when they try to enter into the United States. And I think that it might be time for the U.S. to turn its light on Canada, not because 
of the trade uh, uh, attentions that are currently existing under NAFTA right now and the um, personality attentions that exist between Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and President Donald Trump. But there's a real threat of the suppression of free speech going on north of the border. I mean, the Canadian Parliament a year and a half ago passed a resolution criticizing the legitimate criticism of Islamist extremist activities in that country. And I know that there's been a series of terror attacks that have taken place throughout Canada. Even more so, there's been a series of broken up terror plots that have been going on since 9-11, since 17 years ago yesterday. And I think that this Canadian prime minister and Canadians liberal government trying to institute political correctness at the expense of legitimate criticism is something that will be detrimental to Canadian national security interests and because of its proximity to America's border, our national security interests. And also when we even look at what's going on here in the United States, in towns, in Oregon, in Texas, in Michigan, and in countless other American municipalities, boroughs, townships, and villages, where there may be activity going on within the home that we're not aware of. It, that's one thing. That, that's a criminal offense. And I think that the efforts by Child Protective Services and by, I think, the monitors and sheriff's departments, police departments, and the public school, our, our, our system is, is pretty resilient to be able to, to, to uncover instances of child abuse, of female you know, genital mutilation. And if we look at the second side of that, which is conventions being held in major American cities like in Houston for the Islamic Society of North America conference. And you have an individual who goes up on the stage and says that that activity is justified. That has to stop. And we have to intervene now. Thank you very much to Delaney Anchik, our production assistant, Lisa uh, Barbunas, also uh, coordinating time today. And to our guest, Raheel Raz and Abha Shankar. This is Middle East Form in the Morning on WWDB 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman signing off.